When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to The World in 10. It's your daily roundup of the biggest stories from across the world, written by our correspondents and contributors at The Times of London. I'm Jenny Barsby. Coming up on today's podcast, we have the latest on the second round of voting in Turkey's presidential election. Plus, who really did reach the summit of Everest first? And the French bring in a ban on some short-haul flights, but none are affected. All that coming up in the next 10 minutes. Today's World in 10 podcast starts in Turkey as people return to the polls for the second round of voting in the presidential election. I hope it would be good. I hope it would be hopeful. This is the expression we used to say. I hope the spring will come. Now it's between two men, President Erdogan, who is hoping to extend his 20 years in power, and his rival, Kemal Kilishtaroglu, who is hoping to snare some of the 8 million voters who didn't turn up for the first round. Louise Callahan is the Middle East correspondent at The Times and Sunday Times and has written an editorial piece where she states if Erdogan wins, he'll be in a mire of his own creation. Louise writes that much of that is down to a crumbling economy where inflation is running at near 50%. I live in Istanbul and there was a, there was a point a couple of years ago where the prices were spiraling so much that they wouldn't they would stop labeling products in supermarkets. Um, so you just bring them to the counter and ask how much they were because there's no sense labeling them because the prices went up so much. Even sort of middle class people, you know, my friends, people that I talk to, they've had to massively slash their spending. Poor people are going hungry. I, I spoke to I've spoken to so many shopkeepers who who said that families used to come in here and buy sort of you know kilos of tomatoes. Now they come in and they just buy one tomato at a time. I mean it is you know it's it's really it's a terrible situation. Added to that is the damage caused by February's earthquakes and Erdogan's controversial judicial reforms, which you'll remember led to huge protests across the country. Despite this, Louise tells the World in Ten why Erdogan is still popular. I think for his supporters, the reason why they like Erdogan is because they they see him as a very a very strong leader, a very powerful leader who's put Turkey on the world stage, uh, who can lead them through these crises. And uh, for religious people as well, I think they they see him as a as a great religious leader as well as a political one. He's very very devout. Um, so in that sense, they 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 believe that he's made Turkey uh, a very strong country. Louise's article also delves into Erdogan's foreign policy, his relationship with NATO and the way the country is united in its loathing of Syrian refugees. It is truly 
truly appalling the the way that they are just being cast around like some kind of political football it's it's horrifying really and i think i mean now erdogan is is coming out with this very liberal sounding refugee policy and saying oh well there are muslim brothers and we need to look after them but actually in the past he's illegally deported thousands of syrians Uh, and kamal kiddish that all of the the challenger he went from this sort of in the first round, the sort of grandfatherly, friendly Unitarian candidate to to, all of, to then really doubling down on previous promises that he'd made to to throw Syrians out of the country, and and there's just no discussion at all of like of how that would actually happen. I mean, how can you feasibly deport millions of people um, to a country at war? So that's a that's a really really sort of nasty debate which has escalated uh, in, in the last few weeks. We're expecting the result of the election to come through relatively quickly. The Times of London will be there when it does. Monday marks 70 years, is 70 years since Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became the first climbers confirmed to have reached the summit of Mount Everest. But ahead of the anniversary, there is still controversy over which one of these two men actually got there first. The Times' Jack Morvan's been looking into this and has published a fascinating piece about why that one question has overshadowed the men's achievement since their descent. Jack writes about this long-lost handwritten note which documented their feelings and has now been found by Tenzing's son, Jamling. In it, both men say they took turns at leading the climb that they reached the summit almost together. But Jack tells The World in 10 he's spoken to Hillary and Tenzing's sons and thinks that mystery can now be laid to rest. When I, I spoke to Jamling Tenzing, and he was on the was at base camp at the time, and he said, look, I think that they did arrive both together because the summit is big enough to support that. He said, you know, eight or nine people could walk up there at once and arrive at the peak at exactly the same time. And he believes that's what happened. I admit I have never been tempted to want to climb Everest, but linked to this article is a piece by The Times science editor Tom Whipple and environment editor Adam Vaughan. It compares how hard and dangerous it is to climb the mountain now compared to 70 years ago. Why not take out a Times subscription and have a read? Let me draw your attention now to a mind-blowing article that's up on the Times website, which reveals that in 1983, an unknown IRA sympathiser was hatching a plot to assassinate Queen Elizabeth II during her visit to San Francisco. How? By dropping an object off the Golden Gate Bridge as the Royal Yacht Britannia was passing underneath. I told you it was mind-blowing. Archived FBI documents show how authorities were alerted to the threat by a police officer who had received a call from another drinker at an Irish pub he went to, telling him he wanted to avenge the death of his daughter, who was killed by a rubber bullet in Northern Ireland. Times contributor Kieran Southern has read these documents. We asked him how seriously the FBI took the threats. The files don't explicitly state how seriously the FBI was taking the the threat, although it should be noted that the Secret Service said it was going to close the Golden Gate Bridge's walkway to the public as the yacht approached, so I don't think that would have been um, a possibility anyway. The files also don't say whether the man who made the threat was detained, arrested or questioned, Um, but I think obviously the FBI considered it 
noteworthy enough that they recorded it. Just for some context, the Queen was visiting the US, which has, as you know, strong Irish-American links, at the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And the threat of the IRA was ever-present. In fact, Kieran went on to tell us that San Francisco wasn't the only time there was a security risk to the Queen while she was in America. When the Queen visited New York, a pilot received a summons for flying a small plane over Manhattan with a banner reading, England, get out of Ireland. Despite the threats, Kieran writes the Queen was well received. A highlight of the tour, a welcome performance from Tony Bennett, who serenaded the monarch with I Left My Heart in San Francisco. This week, France became the first country to ban some domestic flights in an effort to cut back on carbon emissions. Now, this sounds like quite a policy, right? But in reality, there are so many exemptions that no services were affected. With more on this story, I'm joined by my colleague, Amy Gill. Now, Amy, what did the ban actually say and why were no flights actually affected? Essentially, a flight route would be stopped if it's possible to do the same route on a less than two and a half hour train journey. It sounds revolutionary, and indeed, President Macron held the ban as a world premiere. But as you say, Jenny, in reality, no routes were affected. Now, Times contributor Charles Bremner is in France, and he has written about this. He told me what happened. There was a lot of pressure from local governments, from from business, business people who want to connect flights, for instance, between cities and, and abroad. And also the European Union cut down the original French plan a little bit because it it was not considered to be equitable, didn't conform to European law. The conditions that they imposed were that there had to be a lot of train services. As you expect, the ban, or perhaps I should say lack of, was highly criticised by Greenpeace, who called for more to be done. But Charles did say that other environmental groups have hailed this as a step in the right direction and the French government hopes to eventually ban more domestic flights. They first need to improve rail services and I was just listening to the Minister of Transport saying that they are now going to focus on putting more trains on the lines between airports that have busy domestic flights so that they can make the switch from air to rail as you know, France has a pretty good rail network, but the the, the fast rail network, the, the high-speed network, is a bit of an exception. There is an old-fashioned rail network for connecting a lot of cities that have no high-speed network, and these are not very good. Just before I go, I've got time to direct you to the sports section of the Times of London, where you can read all about Luton Town, which has become the first football club to go from the top flight to non-league and back again after winning a nail-biting penalty shootout against Coventry City at Wembley. Pure joy for Luton fans, pure agony for Coventry. And that's it for today's World in 10. We're back tomorrow.